Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Do y'all remember the children's book, The Teeny Tiny Woman? I'll admit, this was one of my favorite books as a little kid because it was just fun. You know, the teeny tiny woman lived in a teeny tiny house, and one day she went on a teeny tiny walk, eventually finding a teeny tiny bone that would work to help her make her teeny tiny soup for dinner. I I won't tell you how it all ends, but I'll say this. The end of the book will blow your mind, especially if you're like four years old. Anyway, these days it appears that we've kind of flipped everything on its head. We're led to believe that the big things are teeny tiny and the teeny tiny things are of the utmost importance. And since this is the narrative we're constantly fed through our politicians, news media, social media, entertainment industry, and the like, unless you do your own research, you have no choice but to either believe what you're being told or resign yourself to the fact that you're likely just a conspiracy theorist. On today's episode, first we're going to talk about teeny tiny percentages that allegedly make all the difference in the world, then we'll talk about teeny tiny inches that will throw us all cattywampus, and of course a teeny tiny goal update outlining my teeny tiny progress over the last week. So prepare yourself to pay bigly for the sins of a teeny tiny few, and then hold on tight, things are going to get wild in a teeny tiny way. And in keeping with the theme, here we teeny tiny go. I didn't say it was your fault. I said I was going to blame you. Have you ever heard that saying before? Uh, Regardless of if you have or not, you've definitely been living in a world like that. In the United States, it's been slightly less so because the system of government that the founders set up has been able to temper this philosophy to some degree. But in the U.S. and everywhere in the world, this is the modus operandi, if you will. You probably rarely think of this as being the system you're living in, but make no mistake... You are. Now, this is a little bit older of an article. I've got so many saved, but it's definitely something that I doubt most people have heard, and either you'll hear it now or you'll apparently hear it soon enough. The difference is, if you find out about it later, you'll be angry. But if you hear about it now, well, you'll still be angry. Bad example. Anyway, found on thedrive.com headline... New law mandates interlocks on all new cars, but drunk driving tech isn't ready yet. (laughs) Oh, for those unfamiliar, an interlock on a car is essentially a breathalyzer that measures your blood alcohol content, and if you're below the legal limit, you're allowed to start the car and weave your way home. If your BAC is too high, the car won't start. Find a friend, call an Uber, or just pass out for a while, I guess. Now, this is generally reserved for previous drunk driving offenders mandated by a judge or per the law or something. I don't really know as I don't drink, thus I don't drink and drive. I don't get drunk because I I don't drink and I don't drunk and drive either. I've never been in a traffic court, in fact, and I've never been mandated to have a lack of personal control device placed on my car. But that's all about to change, apparently. Now, the article came out in March of 2023, and if you can think all the way back to then, which 
seems equally like a million years ago and also just a few days ago. This was shortly after the Republicans buckled and crumpled like wet toilet paper, passing the $1 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That was really nothing more than just a force your socialist, America-crippling, brain-dead, green agenda on the American people bill. Really? Well, per this article on page 135 of the quote, spending bill that mainly adds EV charging infrastructure is a few sentences that states that within three years, automakers equip all their cars with some drunk driving interlock. Now, the kicker is it doesn't tell them how to do it because uh, because there, there isn't a good answer to that question right now. So this, of course, is being touted as a safety measure that will keep everyone safe from drunk drivers, and this is said to be largely attributed to mothers against drunk driving. But what would this actually do, exactly? Well, apparently, according to the article, the data says that drunk driving accounts for 30% of road deaths, and in 2020 was responsible for more than 11,000 deaths. Now, that sounds like a lot, and don't get me wrong, it is a lot. I'd also like to have zero deaths on the roads, much like everyone else, I would think, and that would be from drunk driving or any other cause. But what does 11,000 actually represent? Well, looking up some numbers, let me give you the scope of what we're talking about here. In 2019, there were nearly 230 million licensed drivers in the United States and almost 300 million registered vehicles. In 2019, a survey of 5,000 people, 16 years old and older, found that 88.3% of those surveyed drove at least occasionally and made an average of 2.5 trips daily. Now, assuming that's a good poll that can be extrapolated out to the population, that means that per day there would be about 508 million trips, or 185.3 billion trips per year. 11,000 of those trips, making the incorrect but most generous assumption that only one person died in a car per drunk driving death, that means that 0.000006%, six millionths of 1% of trips results in a drunk driving death. Now, just Looking at drivers, assuming each of the drunk drivers is a licensed driver, which again is probably an incorrect assumption, but the most generous, 11,000 of the 230 million drivers died, which equals a death rate of 0.005% or five thousandths of 1%. And this is what's driving the government to mandate the car manufacturers that in three years, if they're going to sell a car in the United States, it should have a BAC interlock. And like a year after that, they must have the interlock. Well, in the industrial world, when requesting money to do pretty much anything, it's an unwritten rule that if you can pin your need to something safety or environment, you'll almost always get the money you're requesting either because of the desire to limit liability or due to empathy or maybe both, humans tend to be swayed by an argument for safety, no matter how tenuous the connection is. But when the government is involved in the process of addressing alleged safety needs, we've not only tried to remove any and all personal responsibility, just handing that over to the government, but we've removed all personal logical thought and reason as well. 
Benjamin Franklin is often quoted or paraphrased as saying, quote, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Now, there are those that say that this doesn't mean what we think it does, that it was taken out of context, whatever. But regardless, the straightforward interpretation of this is spot on, right? Safety is fine, but it's not essential. If we lose our freedom to get that safety, what have we really won? Case in point, a woman in Portland a few weeks ago rented an entire theater in order to allow her and others to watch the Barbie movie. Now, was this a party, a huge group of friends? <laughs> no. In fact, I'm not confident that she knew one person that went to watch the movie with her, or even if anyone took her up on the offer at all, to be honest. See, this woman, a middle-aged, obese individual that clearly has a childlike demeanor, hasn't left her home in about three years. She's absolutely terrified of COVID. She rented the theater with very strict rules. It was a morning showing before the normal day started. The common areas in the theater room would be cleaned and sanitized the night before. Via TikTok, she invited the first 20 people to contact her, but no children that couldn't sit without an N95 mask firmly affixed to his or her face the entire time they were in the theater were allowed. There was no concessions. There was no eating, no drinking. If you had to remove your mask for any reason whatsoever, even just to scratch your nose, you were to leave the movie before doing so. Speaking of which, she was going to inspect your mask to ensure it was the right type and it was firmly fitted to your face. She was bringing extra masks in case she disapproved of yours. She also only wanted one or maybe two employees of the theater present to run the film. She wraps up her video invite by saying, quote, It is a risk. I don't know how else to put that. It is definitely a risk to be in a building for two hours. Makes me anxious. But I feel like it's a measured risk and one I'm willing to take. Now, this is a woman so mentally damaged, so psychologically manipulated that she's locked herself in her home for over three years because she's afraid she's going to die from a virus. But she's so mentally unstable that she's willing to risk her life from her viewpoint to go watch the Barbie movie. But to keep herself safe, she self-imposed the removal of her freedom, just as our government overlords wanted her to do. And what has she lost? You know, I shake my head in disgust at her, but I can't help feeling just a little pity for a person that's so brainwashed that she lives in abject terror of the outside world. Personally, my safety is not worth that loss of liberty and freedom. I'll just take my chances, thanks. The general catchphrase of the Libertarian Party is diligently plotting to take over the world and leave you alone. The Democrats, who at this point are socialists at best, communists or full-on totalitarianists at this point, want us to have no freedom. They will deem what's safe and what's not. They will dictate to us what we will or won't do. Republicans, uh, I mean, what can I say about them, right? I'd say that a portion of them are basically moderate leftists at this point with a few of them being all-out socialists. Most of them are fascists to some degree when you really define it, and a few of them are legitimately constitutional conservatives, the Freedom Caucus mainly, and a few others. But most of the Republicans in control also don't want you to have control over your life. They don't want you to make your decisions. They too believe that they know better than you as to what you should and shouldn't do. 
Now, personally, I'm a hard-right Christian conservative. I am a constitutionalist, and in some cases I tend to be maybe just a little bit more libertarian. I don't believe, for instance, that seatbelt usage should be a law, but I do agree that they definitely save lives. I just rather that people made that choice for themselves. If they choose poorly, well, they assume the risk of very negative consequences. But that risk doesn't affect anyone else. We should be allowed to assess and make our own choices of personal risk. And the same could be said for helmet laws, for instance. However, I believe that illegal drugs should stay illegal. Those can very negatively affect other people in large ways, which can include a massive amount of tax dollars spent to address overdoses, or in some cities provide clean needles, Ugh. not to mention emergency services diverted to address various issues related to drug use, including caused accidents. I'd imagine that your beliefs as to what the government should and shouldn't do are as complex as mine. Very few people are really hardcore libertarian or constitutionalist or socialist when you really press in on their beliefs. Most of us are a combination of these. Now that said, what we're seeing here is what we see coming from the left or those of any political party that are socialist-leaning. This is much less about keeping people safe, much more about treating everyone as criminals, you know, guilty until proven innocent. This is not supposed to be the mindset of a free people, of a free nation. Unfortunately, we see a form of socialist punishment in this country. If one person is guilty, then for some reason all are guilty and must pay the penalty. I'm sure there are some that believe this to be the way to be the most impartial, just apply the agreed-upon fix to everyone. I'm sure there are some that feel that this is the way to be the most sympathetic, not wanting to call out anyone specifically and make them feel bad. You know, just apply it to everyone. And I'm sure there are some that feel this is a very handy form of control, a way to exert power over a populace to keep them in check by enforcing mandates, laws, and controls on everyone, regardless of fairness. This is the negative enforcement of equity. Remember, equity is the theory that all must have the same outcome regardless of starting point, regardless of choices made, etc., etc. Equality is that everyone has the same chances and opportunities, at least in the general sense, but the outcome is dictated by opportunities taken, choices made, personal effort, etc. For those of you that flew or even brought someone to the airport prior to the terrorist attacks of 9-11, you may remember arriving a short time before your flight, walking fully clothed, belted, and shooed, food and drinks in hand through a metal detector. The entire party, those flying, those sending them off, straight to the gate you went. I did a minimal amount of flying prior to 9-11, but what I do remember when I was young, pretty, pretty little, was seeing my aunt off multiple times flying back home or wherever she was going. We'd go to the gate, we'd wait with her until she boarded the plane, I'd stand in the window and watch the, the jetway pull back from the airplane, the, the plane push back, we'd watch until it lined up and took off, and only when we couldn't see it in the air anymore would we turn and leave. Same thing with arrivals. We'd watch the planes land from the arrival gate, eventually seeing the plane taxi into position, the jetway extend, and we, along with many, many other people, would clog the waiting area watching for our person or people to arrive. For those today, that sounds like a crazy dream, and it, it sounds horribly unsafe. No, no, no. Today, we must arrive extra early. 
we must disrobe to the satisfaction of the TSA agent in order to get through the rapey scan machine. Or we must be felt up without being bought a drink, dinner, a movie, nothing, just back of the hand molested by said agent to ensure we're not carrying anything that could apparently take the airplane down. Only ticketed passengers with boarding pass and ID in hand may pass through the 50 shades of the TSA to get to their gate. And randomly, and I do believe it's randomly, the computer will specify an individual to be... I'm not sure. Questioned under a single light bulb? Electrodes attached to various parts of the anatomy? Full body cavity searched? Before they're allowed to enjoy their flight, which at this point is mostly full of fear that you'll get some flight attendant, let's be politically correct here, that's having a bad day that doesn't like your tone and makes the pilot turn that flight around. Now, the random invasive third degree does literally nothing for safety. In the past, we've all seen stories of the elderly person in a wheelchair forced out of the chair so they could check everything. We've seen stories of a person with a colostomy bag being humiliated in front of other passengers as they have to reveal what they're carrying. We've seen children tormented because they were randomly chosen for interrogation. We are all presumed guilty as we walk into the airport, and it's up to us to prove our innocence. Why? Well, because a few terrorists hatched a plot and were able to pull off one of the couple terrorist acts on the United States continent in the history of the country. The fact that we haven't had another terrorist attack of this or greater or lesser magnitude using our airlines has nothing to do with so-called security measures put in place. It has to do with luck, or if you're a believer, God's providence, and the fact that the terrorist groups haven't chosen to try it again yet. This is the correlation versus causation fallacy. Now, El Al Airlines from Israel has had to deal with the very real potential of terrorism pretty much all of the time. They take some standard security measures, obviously, but then they use something radical. Profiling. They don't randomly select a grandma for an extensive interrogation. They watch people. They ask a lot of questions. And they pull aside anyone who is giving off a vibe they don't find to be quite, well, forgive the pun, kosher. Once on El Al, because they've done their due diligence to ensure that anyone that seems suspicious is not a threat, they, the provided in-air meals include real silverware, believe it or not, including knives, if that's required for your meal. You'll never find that on an American commercial carrier, at least none that I know of. By presuming everyone innocent and only further questioning those who raise suspicions, they treat people with equality and overall make a better and safer experience for everyone. In our current emotion-driven, equity-focused state of mind in the United States, yeah, we could never do that, because profiling is equated to racism, as is literally everything, so we, we can't be doing that. Now, I'd like to calculate the percentage of terrorist attacks, or even thwarted terrorist attacks by the TSA, and all their measures, but I can't. See, the TSA, as a matter of policy, doesn't give out any information about how many terrorists they stopped and arrested. Now, if I were a if I were a cynical man, I'd say that that's because they've, they've caught zero, literally zero, <laughs> if I was cynical. But they do report how many weapons they find and stop. It seems like they'd give out terrorist numbers with the same eagerness as gun numbers. But since all we know is guns, let's take a look at the gun numbers. In 2021, travel numbers rebounded to around pre-pandemic levels, and the number of guns confiscated was somewhere around 6,000, out of which about 5,700 of them were loaded. Now, I could bring a loaded gun onto an airplane. 
nobody would need to be concerned, as one, I'm not out to kill anyone, two, I'm not interested in hijacking an aeroplane, three, I'm not a terrorist, and four, I'm not stupid. I understand what happens if you puncture a pressurized metal tube at 35,000 feet. So how many out of these 6,000 were actually looking to do something nefarious? I'd put my money down on none. Otherwise, we'd definitely hear about it. But we only hear about a gun was stopped at a checkpoint, which implies it was either an idiot or a simple mistake. But with that said, according to an ABC News report, in 2021, they confiscated 11 firearms for every 1 million passengers. Doing the math, that equates to 0.0011%, or 1.1 thousandths of 1% of travelers that had a gun. Less than 1 thousandth of 1% was actually loaded. And I'd argue that 0% were actually out to commit a crime. It seems like adopting a system where we look for very specific indicators, you know, profiling, would be a better use of our time and resources. How about gun control? Let's go there for a second since we're talking about guns. Gun control, magazine capacity limits, bump stocks, pistol braces, fully automatic weapons, as Joey Puddin Pants likes to bring up, cannons, etc., Look, if I want a 100-round drum on my AR-15 so I can melt my barrel as I unload it in the span of a handful of seconds through the use of my bump stock, why would any government official or agency care about that? I mean, sure, by owning a firearm, I could be a threat to many, many people. But I'm not. I could own a fully functioning loaded tank, and the only worry anyone would have is if I make a mistake while driving it and I roll over their truck. <laughs> Oopsie. But for a few reasons, guns in the hands of everyone is bad, right? Ignoring the obvious for our purposes here, which for sake of mention is to stop tyranny by our government, what we see is a handful of bad people with guns doing bad things with guns. Thus, guns are clearly the problem and should be removed from the hands of everyone. Currently in the United States, there are around 470 million guns in the hands of the citizens, According to the Gun Violence Archive, which claims no political affiliation, but their data is massively abused by leftist gun grabbers, there have been 480 mass shootings in the United States so far in 2023. Now that seems like a lot. This organization defines mass shootings as those where four or more individuals were injured or killed, not including the shooter. Different groups calculate it differently. Some ignore gang shootings, which pretty much knocks out Democrat strongholds like Chicago, for instance, which is fairly convenient. I'm not sure if this archive includes those or not, but there are a large number of Illinois entries, so I'll assume they add in at least some of the gang shootings. So with 470 million guns in the United States, about 75 million Americans say that they own a gun. About 150 million say that either they own a gun or they know someone that does. So let's just say 150 million people own 470 million guns. And we've had 480 mass shootings so far in 2023. Out of those 480, there were 509 people killed, 2,024 people injured. There were 26 suspects killed. 27 injured, and 278 were arrested. Now look, again, I don't want anyone injured or killed by a bad person with a gun. I have no problem with that bad person being killed, as a side note, but it seems to me that if you take the grand total, 2,533 people injured or killed, out of about 340 million people in the United States, that's 0.0007% 
or seven ten-thousandths of one percent of the population. Now, we have to make some assumptions about suspects, but around 500 actual shooters were involved in these shootings. But for the sake of argument, let's go bigger. Let's say 750 individuals were the bad guys in these shootings. Let's further make the incorrect assumption that they all used legally made and obtained guns. That's 750 guns out of about 470 million. Ready? That's 0.0002%, or two ten-thousandths of 1% of guns used in the committing of a mass shooting. And this is what the Democrats are using as justification for removing guns out of the hands of the population at large. Of course, we all know, I mean, literally almost everyone knows, that the only guns that would be removed from society are from people that wouldn't be using them in a crime or a murder in the first place. So, Logically, if the ability to defend is removed, the crime will actually go up. This is why most mass shootings, at least premeditated ones, are conducted in locations where the potential for meeting resistance is very low. Of course, the general slogan to try to force this kind of insanity, where all of us are guilty, is if it saves one life. But did you know that today in the United States, we have somewhere around 3.7 million births per year? We also have somewhere around 600,000 abortions per year. At least those are the reported abortions. So 600,000 out of 4.3 million total babies equates to 14% of babies who are murdered. In the year 2000, Mifepristone, you know, the abortion pill, was approved for the United States. The peak of abortions hit around 2007 at about 825,000 for that year. Then it dropped over the next few years to around 600,000 today. One could make, and I've heard many make the argument, that the number of abortions really hasn't changed, just the method and what's being reported. Well, if that's true and we're still aborting, let's say, 825,000 babies, that murder percentage bumps up to over 18%, nearly one out of every five babies conceived being murdered. And out of those abortions, and again, the data is sketchy, but it's easily less than 1% are due to rape, incest, or the life of the mother. If we eliminated all the abortions of convenience, we'd have somewhere in the neighborhood of three quarters of a million additional babies born every year and we'd cut the murder rate down to around one or two-tenths of one percent of conceived children. But that's silly. I mean, who am I to tell a woman what to do with her body, right? We could say the same for experimental, poorly tested chemical injections with cooked and hidden safety data. We'll never know the true numbers in the United States, but we all know that the number of so-called COVID virus deaths is nowhere near what was reported. We also know that drugs and procedures in given hospitals are responsible for a certain number of deaths. We know that criminal organizations like the FDA saying not to use drugs that were clearly shown to work, like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are responsible for a certain number of deaths as are pharmacists that took it upon themselves to practice medicine. And we know that this mRNA genetic therapy injection that in no way is anything remotely close to what could be considered a vaccination is responsible for a certain number of deaths now and will be for years, potentially generations to come. There are some that through the gathering of whatever data can be found and extrapolating out to the population, put the number of people killed so far with this chemical at about 1 million. In the long run, I have no qualms saying that this chemical will be responsible for more injuries and deaths than the virus is or ever could have been. But if it saves only one, then you must get the injection and the booster 
and the boosters, and the annual shot, and wear your mask, and lock down, and shut up, and do what you're told. In Genesis 4, when Cain was asked where his brother Abel was, Cain responded, Am I my brother's keeper? Well, in this case, yes, he he was, as he literally murdered his brother. But in normal situations, no. We're not called to be responsible for the actions of others or for others. We're not to be punished for what others do. And we aren't to be the responsibility of someone else. Of course, there are exceptions for age, disability, etc. We all know that. And men are responsible for their household. But that doesn't mean we can force compliance. If someone is going to go prodigal, well, sometimes that's what's going to happen. We also know that there needs to be laws and rules. Otherwise, it's chaos and anarchy, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. But although laws apply to all, laws are codes of conduct, not penalties applied to all. For instance, the law is don't drive when you are impaired through the ingestion of alcohol. If you do, there will be consequences for your actions. Adding a passive or active interlock to a vehicle is a penalty applied to all based on the actions of a few. Ezekiel 18 is a chapter that speaks of personal responsibility with regard to faith. Now, this is God explaining to Israel that although the nation was being punished, it was because of individual sin by the nation as a whole. God, speaking through Ezekiel to the nation, asks the Israelites why they were trying to shift the blame for their current situation to the sins of their fathers. They were using the proverb, quote, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. They were trying to claim that their fathers did this to them, that they were innocent. God said no more. They were not going to use that proverb anymore, and then proceeded to set them straight on how things actually work. God addressed two basic scenarios. One, a righteous father and an unrighteous son, and two, an unrighteous father and a righteous son. This chapter and the summation of what God speaks through Ezekiel is that the soul who sins will die. In the first case, if the father, quote, walks in my statutes and my judgments and is careful to do the truth, he is righteous and will surely live. God goes on, quote, then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother. And then God lists a number of sins and then says, quote, will he live? He will not live. He has done all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on himself. Well, God then moves to the second case, quote, Now behold, he has a son who has seen all his father's sins, which he has done, and he saw this, but does not do likewise. God then lists those same sins, but is clear that despite what the son saw the father do, the son does not commit those sins. Rather, he, quote, does my judgments and walks in my statutes. He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. God then sums up these two scenarios, quote, Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? But the son has done justice and righteousness and has kept all my statutes and done them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins will die. The son will not bear the iniquity of the father, nor will the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Now, can we take this and apply it to interlocks in cars, restrictions on gun rights or TSA security? 
yeah, I think we can, at least in principle. The Israelites had rules and laws that were given by God. They chose to defy God and break his laws. They were punished for what they did. The nation was not punished for the sins of each person, but because the nation as a whole was breaking God's laws, it gave the appearance that the nation was being punished. If we were all drinking and driving and the government mandated that if you drink and drive, you need an interlock, so everyone, because of individual choices, had interlocks on our cars, it would give the appearance that we're all being punished collectively, but we would all be being punished individually. It would just be all of us. I hope that made sense. What our government is doing, though, is applying the sour grapes that someone ate to all of our teeth, guilt by association, guilty until proven innocent. And worse, even though we can prove ourselves innocent, we're still treated as if we're guilty. These kinds of collective punitive measures are one of the mostly annoying, mostly mildly disruptive, but subtle ways that show how we've moved away from God and the truths of the Bible. This is, as I've said before, nothing but a socialist form of punishment. Socialism, at least the sinful man-created form of socialism, is a godless system and philosophy by definition. It must be. This kind of collective punishment is what's seen in POW camps. This is what's seen in prisons. This is what's seen in military basic training. This is what's seen in the primary school classroom. It's a form of bullying or peer pressure, or it's really a lazy way to enforce compliance by determining the punishment to be meted out for the breaking of a rule, and rather than applying it to the rule breaker, it's applied to everyone, regardless. So as Christians, what do we do? Well, as of now, I mean, not a whole lot. We can file lawsuits and complain, but in none of these cases, the interlocks, the TSA, gun control, are we being mandated to do something God forbids or to not do something that God commands? If at some point that changes and a collective edict forces us to break a command of God, then we must not comply, whatever that might be. Now, this is where I and many others found ourselves with the aforementioned chemical injection. The risk to the body we were given by God was too great, and we could not, in good conscience, risk our life in that way. So we did not comply. Now, sadly, others were convinced by faith leaders that it was their Christian duty to love their neighbor and get the shot. Those faith leaders were within their right to make their own decision. They were wrong to guilt others into making the decision that they felt was right for them or even for society. It's something they should repent of. I theologically, judgmentally digress. I don't want to leave you hanging partway through Ezekiel 18, though, is where we left off. Either you were in or you were out. You either did good or you did bad, and thus was your lot. But the chapter does go on as God gives us hope and then gives us a warning. First, the hope that the Israelites needed and that we all need. Quote, but if the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has done, and keeps all my statutes and does justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions, which he has done, will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness, which he has done. He will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Is it not that he should turn from his ways and live? And then the warning, quote, But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, does injustice, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his unfaithfulness which he has committed and his sin which he has committed. For them he will die. And then a final plea. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his way. Turn back and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from yourselves all your transgressions, which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. 
Now why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore turn back and live. Fortunately for humanity, about six centuries after Ezekiel was written, Jesus, the God-man, came to earth to make a way for us to receive that new heart and to receive not a new spirit, but the indwelling of the Spirit. We now, if we're saved, have the righteousness of Jesus wrapped around us as our works, as our best efforts, will always fall short of God's standard. Salvation, forgiveness, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ doesn't give us the right to do whatever we please as God can mete out consequences for our choices and actions as he pleases for our good and his glory, but it does guarantee that God will not cast us out, that we are secure in our eternity. And there you have it. Where else can you go from drunk driving vehicle interlocks to eternal security in Christ that seamlessly? I just wish I could take credit for it. But the reality is because God created everything, everything by nature can and frankly should be brought back to God. Everything at its core can be taken back to the Bible in some form and fashion. If that was done more often, maybe many of the issues, much of the strife we see in this world, would disappear. Well, now we've done it. So, in my career, my title is, uh, well, I don't, to be honest, I'm not really entirely sure what my official title is, but my career since my first job out of college has been in the field of reliability. I'm a mechanical engineer by degree, a mechanical reliability engineer by career, and I have been for about 23 years now. <laughs> oh, only about 50 or so more years and I can start to think about retirement. Anyway. When a widget manufacturer wants to manufacture certain specific widgets and needs a machine to do it, they'll go to a machine-making company. Machine Co. will work with Widget Inc. to determine what exactly, exactly, we're talking very exactly, this machine is supposed to do. What kind of widgets, what size, how many and how fast, what will be fed into the machine and what exactly needs to come out, what environment the machine will live its life in, how much automation versus how much manual labor should be done, how big the machine can be, what kind of footprint it needs to fit into, and so many more. There are a massive number of customer specs that need to be gathered, and engineers, at least the good ones, do their best to get all of the information so they can design the machine that the widget maker wants. The engineer, again, if he or she is a good engineer, will figure out some safety factors and put those into the machine. And that may mean they design it to have a greater output or a greater capacity or greater speed than required. They design certain components that would see greater stresses or greater wear, stronger and more robust so as to withstand more than the minimum requirement. And again, the list goes on. Then Machine Code delivers the machine to Widget Inc., who installs the machine, performs the setup, commissions the machine, and eventually signs off that Machine Code delivered the machine they were asked to make. At this point, Widget Inc. throws the owner's manual away, disregards the very exacting specifications the machine was designed to, and adjusts the adjustments way out of what's allowable and cranks that sucker well past its design maximum, and in short order breaks the shiny new machine. This is where the maintenance department, of which I'm either directly part of or at least directly aligned with, comes in. Working with maintenance, my job is to figure out why it broke and come up with solutions so it doesn't break like that again. 
And no, before you ask silly questions, running it per the manufacturer's instructions or per the design specs is not the right answer. No, no, no. It's our job now to take a very carefully engineered, designed, and assembled widget maker and redesign or modify or cobble something together to make it do what the production department now wants it to do, which is usually nowhere near what it was designed to do. So I say all that to say this. We've broken our biggest machine because we're clearly not using it correctly, and now it needs to be fixed. And just like Widget Inc., we've been using it in ways it was never designed to be used, and now we're shocked that it's falling apart. Of course, this one wasn't designed at all. No, it exploded into being. Well, eventually. And everything just kind of figured itself out. So we don't even have an owner's manual to ignore or throw away. We're kind of flying blind on this one. Now, luckily, we have a massive number of totally smart people to tell us how we can fix what we've done. That said, we may have really screwed up this time. I found on popularmechanics.com headline, Earth has tilted 31.5 inches. That shouldn't happen. See, it shouldn't happen, but apparently it did, and now we're all doomed. Again, because we broke the Earth. Again. John Kerry and Al Gore and Greta Thunberg can only fix this thing so many times. Yeah, the solution is really for all of us just to die already. If we could just clear humanity off of this flying orb or flying disc, if you're relatively insane, then it could just go back to what it was doing and evolution could do its thing without being disrupted. Of course, evolution created us, so it must have known it needed humans, or it didn't. It really just... Depends on how you want evolution to act, consciously or randomly. Anyway, the point is that humanity needs to cease to be. That would just solve the problem. But since we're all still here, for now, let's take a look and see what we've done this time. Apparently this all comes down to the fact that we're pumping too much groundwater. We're pumping water from under the crust to over the crust. I guess, and we're taking it from over there, and we're pumping it over here, and the earth is all wibbly-wobbly because of it. The study was conducted by the Seoul National University, led by Ki Wan So, a geophysicist. The study looked at data from 1993 to 2010, and no, I'm not sure why it only used those years. I mean, it seems like they'd have more data from at least some of the last 13 years as well doesn't matter, but they found that in that time, 2,150 gigatons of groundwater was pumped from hither to yon, which caused the Earth to tilt an unprecedented 31.5 inches. Now, I hear some of you scoffing at this, but to put this in perspective so you understand the magnitude of this kind of shift in the tilt of the Earth and make you eat your mocking laughter... The radius of the Earth from the center to the pole is about 3,950 miles. The Earth's radius from the center to the equator, incidentally, is slightly larger at 3,963 miles, you know, because of the spinning. Anyway, the 3,950 miles from the core to the pole in inches is 250,272,000 inches. So using an online calculator, because I didn't want to do this math myself, that means that the Earth tilted 0.000072 degrees over those nearly 20 years of pumping water. 
That's 7.2 millionths of a degree. Now, that likely doesn't mean much to you right now, but let me see if I can help you out. For instance, if I took off from Miami, Florida, with the intent to land in Seattle, Washington, and I was off by 0.0000072 degrees as I left Miami, by the time I got to Seattle, my airplane would land slightly off-center on the correct runway I was aiming at in the first place. So now you see how unbelievably devastating this is, right? (laughs) Yeah, you do. And because of this, practically earth-flipping tilting, we we have seen or should have seen or, or could see in the near future, the article isn't really clear here, nearly one quarter of one inch of sea level rise. And as we've all seen with the latest hurricane to hit Florida, that one quarter of an inch in conjunction with only like three more feet of water, will cause all sorts of electric vehicle batteries to just light up and burn uncontrollably for hours or days, melting the car to the ground, destroying whatever it was parked on and torching all other stuff near it. So so who's laughing now, Professor Chucklebutton? Professor So said, quote, Earth's rotational pole actually changes a lot. Our study shows that among climate-related causes, the redistribution of groundwater actually has the largest impact on the drift of the rotational pole. He goes on to say, quote, I'm very glad to find the unexplained cause of the rotation pole drift. On the other hand, as a resident of Earth and a father, I'm concerned and surprised to see that pumping groundwater is another source of sea level rise. Well, me too, Professor. I'm also a scientist, I'm also a father, and I'm also a resident of the planet of which I'm a resident on, and I'm probably more surprised than you that pumping groundwater is making the sea level rise. Unlike him, I'm not concerned in the least, to be honest. So, if all we're going to do is flip and flop the earth around, why are we moving around water? Just leave it alone, man. I mean, we can't afford more tilt inches. Well, according to the NGWA.org, no, not NWA, you know, the rap group from the 80s and 90s, the NGWA, the National Groundwater Association, an estimated 982 cubic kilometers of groundwater is extracted per year. That's 982 gigatons, if I understand my conversions correctly. But why? Well, the majority, 70%, is used for agriculture. So when they talk about climate-related causes, what they're actually saying is that we're irrigating lands that previously couldn't really grow food because it didn't get enough water. But since we like to feed people, both the increasing population of the world and those who used to live in areas where they'd starve because they didn't have food or water, we've decided that through modern technology, we can water the earth and grow food. Now on the surface... That's all well and good. But did any of these starving people think about their selfish lust for food and how it would tilt the earth 31.5 inches? Probably not. They were just thinking about their bellies. Terrible people. They should just go to Walmart and buy food like the rest of us. So if we're pumping this much water out of the ground, won't we run out of underground water? You know, like how we ran out of oil decades ago, despite the best and brightest scientists warning us that we were almost out of oil again decades ago. (laughs) 
Well, in the ground, in the upper two kilometers of the Earth's crust, there's only an estimated 22.6 million gigatons of water. So from 1993 to 2010, the 2,150 gigatons we've stolen from Mother Earth equates to 0.0095% or 9.5 thousandths of 1% of the groundwater available in the upper crust. And each year we're pilfering 0.0043% or 4.3 thousandths of 1%. I mean, at that current rate, in a mere 230 years, we'll have siphoned off a single percent of all the groundwater. Well, the groundwater that's in that kind of upper crust, like close to the surface water at least. And it's even worse, if one could even possibly believe it. In 2019, found on NationalGeographic.com headline, We pump too much water out of the ground, and that's killing our rivers. Well, I don't want our rivers to die, do you? <laughs> Apparently you do, because the byline reads, quote, By 2050, thousands of rivers and streams worldwide could pass a critical ecological threshold, new research shows. Have you even thought about that? <laughs> no, you haven't. You only think about yourself. Currently, an estimated 15 to 21 percent of watersheds that are experiencing groundwater thievery are being desiccated. The ecosystems, the flora and fauna are, or could be, stressed to a point of danger. And if we don't stop what we're doing, that number could hit 40 to 79 <laughs> percent Pretty scientifically exact, accurate range right there by the year 2050. So, so there's that. Now, what's shocking to me is that all of this stuff, the rivers, the groundwater, the flora, and or the fauna, which is just fancy speak for plants and animals, all came about via the creative forces of evolution. But as we all know, evolution has stopped or some of it has stopped or it's, it's stopped for some things when it's convenient. See, you'd almost think that if evolution were true, that the fauna and flora, and how uncomfortable did it make you that I said it backwards, would evolve to changing stream conditions. But no, that's silly. I'm being a silly stupid head. Let's go back to our wobbling earth problem, shall we? We know that the pole moved because that can be measured. We know that it's because of the amount of groundwater being pumped and relocated because... Well, I'll come back to that in a second. And we know all this groundwater is being pumped because of climate because, um, well, fake fake science. I've spoken on that a lot in the past and will undoubtedly speak more in the future. We can ignore that. And we know that since the poles shifted 31.5 inches, a resulting sea level rise of one quarter inch has occurred or will occur. I'm not entirely sure. And a sea level rise of one quarter inch is fairly devastating because um, eh, we'll come back to that one also here in just, just a minute. So the study is kind of interesting. It it's more so as you read into their methodology. Turns out that yes, the shift in the pole is verifiably measured. I'm not going to argue that. But the groundwater pumped and shifted mostly because of the fault of humans trying to live. Well, that's not actually measured. That's being backward calculated through the use of, wait for it, a model. So the pole position, a great cartoon in the 80s, as well as a fantastic video game, by the way, the pole position, that position of the pole has been measured for a while. I'm not sure how long, but I'd say almost no time at all as compared to a young Earth history and essentially 0% of the time in an evolutionary history. But no matter, the pole has been tracked, which was input into this model. 
the shift in the pole was input into this model. They know that water is pumped and relocated, so that fact was put into this model. Then the model was run through multiple iterations until it arrived at the best possible fit, that 2,150 gigatons of groundwater was relocated from point A to point B. And that's the proof. Now, this may be correct. As I've said many, many times before, models are only as good as the modeler and the data used to create the model. I'm not even going to begin to pretend to be smart enough to look at their methodology and tell you if they modeled this correctly. My point is that this is yet another completely scientific, climate destruction, planet-killing, fear-porn article, all based on maybe. So the implications of this shift, as I stated, was a one-quarter-inch sea level rise, allegedly. What kind of unholy devastation will this cause, or, or has this caused already? Again, I'm not really sure here. Well, according to the Paris Climate Accord, which we won't go into, but at its base level is an agreement among a large number of the major nations around the globe saying that we'll all destroy our economies and stop innovation, stop industrialization, limit agriculture, and basically murder billions of people in order to do essentially nothing with regard to greenhouse gases and climate change. And most nations that signed it did out of virtue signaling they have no intention whatsoever in abiding by it. President Obama, I believe it was, signed us up for this destructive thing. President Trump dropped us out of this debacle, and President Pudding Pants re-signed us into it, not because of science so much, but because of hatred of this country and likely a good amount of corruption. Anyway... If we do everything this agreement states, and by we, I mean every single country, which as I established isn't going to happen and isn't currently happening, then we can stave off slight melting of the glaciers or something and stop the sea levels from rising about a half a centimeter or three sixteenths of an inch per year starting in about the year 2100. So you can see what a full quarter of an inch today means, right? No? Not yet? Okay. <sighs> yeah, me either. In fact, it literally means nothing. I mean, the sea can rise a quarter of an inch and nobody would care. The woke leftists living in New York City will be able to drive and walk at ground level without getting their designer shoes wet. The rich climate warriors with their island or beachfront properties won't have to build a small berm or put in extra French drains in order to keep their mansions safe and dry. A quarter inch does nothing. In fact, I went on the internet, the interwebs, to look for sea level rise simulators. A lot of them redirect back to the same NOAA.gov simulator, but I found something on Google Earth, something on NOAA, something on flood.firetree.net, something on ss2.climatecentral.org, and the curious thing is that none of them modeled in increments of inches or centimeters of sea level rise. In fact, the smallest increment they all use is feet, with one foot being the minimum rise. One foot is 48 times a one-quarter inch sea level rise. But even at one foot, the effect on shorelines of countries or even islands is fairly negligible. At 10 feet, at least for the United States, we, we still don't see much of a loss of land. I mean, we lose the tip of Florida. We lose the southern part of Louisiana. No big loss there. We get encroachment into New York, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and other locations. But overall, the model for 10 feet doesn't look devastating at all. 
you think that over a period of hundreds of years, we could adapt and evolve. What's fun is that on the ss2.climatecentral.org simulator is that you can click on various points on the coastlines of countries and it will tell you when the sea level will rise the number of feet you selected at various levels of carbon cuts. We can either leave things as is or do moderate cuts or extreme cuts. The best I can tell is that for, uh, for a foot of rise, if we do nothing, we'll see that foot in 2050. I mean, we won't, but that's what the model says. If we take moderate or extreme measures, we're still going to see that one foot of sea level rise, but now it'll be 10 years later, in 2060. In a few cases, we see a 20-year reprieve, but I mean, you get the idea of what I'm talking about here. But with the moderate, and especially with extreme cuts, we'll literally destroy huge swaths of humanity. Now, if you look at a 10-foot rise, it apparently doesn't matter what we do. Sometime after the year 2200, that's what's going to happen no matter what we cut or don't cut. So why are we doing all these climate salvation measures? These electric vehicles, the sustainable energy production, the elimination of plastics, the elimination of meat, etc., etc. Yeah, not for the climate or the planet. See, now, I almost wonder if this has anything to do with money and power and control. <laughs> Nah. So here's my question. Well, one question out of so many questions that nobody can answer. I mean, I've asked the question before and I've asked chat GPT as well as climate screechers. What is the correct temperature of the globe? Well, nobody knows. All they know is that they either don't want it to change or they want it more like what it used to be before the Industrial Revolution. But when before the Industrial Revolution? Because according to climate science, our world has been much warmer than it is today and much colder. So which temperature do they want? The reality is they want to keep it at the same temperature as it is today, which is also a farce because they don't even really know what the global temperature is right now. There are way, way too many variables. There are bad temperature data from the bad weather stations that are either in terrible positions, like on top of a building with a black roof, or directly in the path of the exhaust, for lack of a better term, of an industrial air conditioner, which is exhausting heated air. This whole thing is a house of cards, and not like a new deck of nice, wax-covered stiff cards. No, these are cards that have rips and tears. They're crumbled and crumpled, soft and flexible. And the card house is set up on a piece of poster paper floating in the turbulent and rising seas in the middle of an ever-increasing number of hurricanes with increasing intensity because climate change. In other words, there's literally no such thing as climate science because we don't know what we had, we don't know what we have, and we have no idea what may or may not be coming in the future or what that even means. So along those same lines, how do we know the correct tilt of the Earth? We have a very tiny window of knowing the tilt of the Earth. How do we know that it's not in one of those kind of wobbles that increases and decreases, that increases again? You know what I'm talking about. Think of a spinning top. It spins nicely, then it gets a little funky out there, then it spins nicely again. It's got some sort of frequency that's coming in and out of phase. Maybe the Earth has that as well, and a 31 and a half inch shift is just a normal thing that we haven't seen before, that we know of, at least. Furthermore, how do we know the correct position of the pole? In Is this yet another case of us just wanting it to be what it's always been, because that's what we've always known? Because maybe telling a spinning planet what it can or can't do is a little ambitious or, or arrogant of us. 
Even further, if evolution is real, which I, I guarantee most, if not all, of these climate scientists and researchers believe, isn't evolution a continual set of small changes over time? By definition, with evolution, you can't ever reach steady state, can you? I spoke about this on a recent segment on universal constants. That's assuming I put these out in the correct order. Our Earth should always have a changing climate. Our planet should always have a shifting pole. Our universe shouldn't have anything that's constant. Now, maybe in our small boundaries of a generation or a handful of generations, it can appear to be constant. But in a planet that's 4.7 billion years old, how can we expect that per evolutionary theory, anything is constant? Maybe given that amount of time, the oscillations of certain aspects of the universe would reach a steady state position, but especially aspects that we know are changing currently and have been for as long as we've been able to measure, such as the global temperature, the magnetic field, or the position of the pole, the tilt of the earth, although the change in the tilt appears to be a faster shift than we're used to, we know, based on previous movement, its position hasn't reached a steady state condition. So the 4.7 billion years hasn't been enough time, apparently. So why do we act like this shift is a bad thing or a problem or abnormal at all, since we don't know what it should be or what it's supposed to do over time? Now, the only way to have any sort of constant anything is for it to be designed and maintained as such. Neither evolution nor man has that power or ability to do this especially on a planetary scale. Only arrogance allows us to think we can demand that of our own accord. Now, constancy, consistency, and stability, that's a blessing from God. Only. There's no other way for it to be true. Finally, I want to point out something that uh, is just not discussed enough, I think. We are constantly being told to panic and react, with the reaction typically being to do what we're told by some governing body based on statistically and mathematically Nothing. Let me explain. The headline of our main article said that the Earth tilted 31 and a half inches, and it shouldn't do that. Even though they spelled the word inches out, in my mind initially, I took it as degrees, because we don't often speak of a tilt in terms of inches. But if they wrote the headline as Earth has tilted 0.0000072 degrees, that shouldn't happen, how many people would even think to click on an article like that? I mean, who cares? That's zero. That's mathematically zero degrees of tilt. What about the groundwater used? 2,150 gigatons of water has been moved. Again, assuming that's true, that's a huge amount of water as compared to what I use in each flush of the toilet, but that's 0.0095% of all the groundwater under the crust of the earth, and we're expected to believe that that would cause the earth to shift position? I mean, maybe, but again, would the article have the same impact if instead of one of the paragraphs in the article reading, quote, the study included data from 1993 through 2010 and showed that the pumping of as much as 2,150 gigatons of groundwater has caused a change in the Earth's tilt of roughly 31.5 inches. What if it read, quote, the study included data from 1993 through 2010 and showed that the pumping of as much as 0.0095% of all groundwater has caused a change in the Earth's tilt of roughly 0.0000072 degrees. It just doesn't seem to be as big of a deal when you use realistic values. Looking at Google Earth's discussion on sea level rise, it has a section that reads, quote, Carbon pollution caused by human activities is a primary driver of climate change and ice sheet loss. 
If we emit enough carbon to cause 4 degrees Celsius of warming, or 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit, we could lock in enough eventual sea level rise to submerge land currently home to as many as 760 million people around the world. Yet, if we can reduce carbon emissions to limit warming to 2 degrees Celsius, or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, the proposed international target, we would reduce the threat from sea level rise to areas now occupied by as few as 130 million people instead. Now, they cite London as having 1.2 million people, New York City, 2.9 million people, Mumbai is 11 million people, Shanghai, 22 million, Lagos with 3.7 million, Rio de Janeiro with 2.4 million people, and San Francisco with about 600,000 people and an unknown mass of human poop, all being displaced if the planet warms by 4 degrees Celsius. Their solution, of course is for man to stop emitting carbon, or at least as much as possible. But what they don't tell you is that, first, this is 9.5% of the entire global population. A significant percentage, but nothing that couldn't be relocated. Two, cities, states, and countries on coastlines already have systems in place to hold back water that, if left to itself, would flood the region. Three, this wouldn't happen all at once. It would be very small changes over a long period of time, which would allow countries to react, people to adapt, etc. And four, and probably most importantly, they don't tell you that apparently it literally doesn't matter if we do anything or not. By their own models, we're only delaying the sea level rise by maybe 10 years. So, Rather than destroy economies, countries, and humanity to stave off climate change for a few years, maybe we spend that time developing the best technology to hold the water back or uh, develop a plan to relocate people or, or something like that. That's if the models are correct, which I'll go on record right here, right now, saying that they're not. They're not even close. But again, this is another instance where we're not told what the temperature fluctuations were in the past, the relative insignificance of holding back temperature rise, the fact that nearly all climate models have been incorrect, etc., etc. Those agenda makers are very good at using numbers. The media is very good at parroting those numbers and making them sound as scary as possible. The way that data is related to the public at large and the way that articles and headlines are written are done in a way a very precise way to evoke the correct amount of the desired emotion, usually fear, to get the desired result, usually compliance. Sadly, Christians and non-Christians alike have been suckered in and duped into believing all of this nonsense, that we're destroying the planet, that it's doing things it was never supposed to do, that we have a deeper wisdom from before time that has allowed us to know exactly what should and shouldn't happen and what the effect will be, and that humans hold the ultimate power over the future of the planet, and if we're not careful, we'll destroy it. Now, I would dispute that assertion, that man has that kind of power or authority. We definitely have the inflated ego and arrogance, but not the ability to do what is being claimed. Don't be taken in by so-called studies, carefully written headlines, fear porn, confidence, or arrogance, or any of nearly an infinite number of tricks, spin, or outright lies used by the agenda-driven authorities. We have one authority. He made this thing. He has brought destruction upon it before, and he'll do it again, but it'll be in his timing, not ours. It'll be his way, not ours. So in closing, let me submit as my evidence, your honor, a small portion of the words of Yahweh as he addresses Job's lament, asking, why me, Lord, and why this? God, rather than answering Job's questions directly, and these were valid questions, instead asserted his authority and his sovereignty and then I'll have Job's final response. Quote, 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you make me know. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know understanding, who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors, when bursting forth it went out from the womb, when I made a cloud its garment, and dense gloom its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. And then Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too marvelous for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak, I will ask you, and you make me know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I reject myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. This is a goal update. This is where I update my goal progress or lack thereof. This was a bad idea. Yeah, it's much easier when you don't have to think about things, you know, just kind of exist in the world, do what you want to do. But here we are, so let's get moving. Starting with weight fluctuation, the last weigh-in came in at 194.2 pounds. Now that's down, which is good, 0.4 pounds over the last week, which isn't as good. You know, I've been watching my weight through the week since this last weigh-in and there's just not a lot of progress. Now, I'm a little high on my calorie goal, but still under what my daily burn would be. Plus, I'm getting workouts in, not every night, but regular. So I'm not entirely sure what's going on. What I have learned over the course of this year is that salty foods tend to make my weight uh, hang for a day or two, which is unfortunate because I, I am a salt connoisseur. I'm guessing... Maybe that's water weight, but I don't want to sound like a doctor now patient, so I'm not really sure. But I can tell you that eating popcorn, which I eat with a large amount of butter and salt, which is why I can't eat it all the time, well, that'll cause my weight to go up the next day by, I mean, a couple pounds. It's it's a large bowl of popcorn, but it ain't two pounds large. And then a couple days later, it drops back to what I would expect it to be. I discovered that rice, which we pretty much eat just the simple white minute rice with uh, with, with butter and salt. I'm, it's a pattern here. It, it does the same thing. Now, spaghetti with some sauce does not have an effect the next day. I think, and I'm still experimenting, but I think that the planter's dry-roasted salted peanuts are doing the same thing. But I'm not really sure. We're working on that here. Whatever it is, progress has not been as fast, which is... It's fine. I mean, I'm not too concerned about it. I mean, I feel good. Back feels good. Energy levels up, etc., etc. You know, all the good things. I don't know. Maybe with the transition to some cardio followed by strength training is causing a slight transition from fat to muscle, one can hope, right? Muscle being more dense than fat. I know that my belt has moved back down again, maybe, I don't know, half an inch to three quarters of an inch. 
So something's happening. Uh, I don't know. I'm not confident that the next weigh-in will be stellar either, but uh, maybe it'll all catch up at some point in the future. Or maybe I'm just destined to be husky. Who knows? I'd be more than fine being 190 pounds if fat went down and some more muscle went up. For right now, this goal, uh, I'm going to put it as a light green, I guess. And if I'm going to hit 175 by the end of the year, we're back to a necessary weight loss of 1.5 pounds per week, which is still doable, but I don't know what's going on. Moving to pages red, yeah, I didn't do any reading. I just be honest. There's nothing. I mean, just zero pages. And I haven't really done, I don't think, any since the last time I updated the tracking file either. So the next update is probably not going to be great either. Now, have some reasons. My previous church, which we moved on from about six months ago, was celebrating their 75th anniversary. As part of that, Miss Nancy, one of the pillars of that church, wanted to put on a puppet show like we used to do, something that we hadn't done in a number of years for a variety of reasons. So the kid and I, well, we'll pretty much do anything for Miss Nancy, and we got involved with practices and the show, and et cetera, et cetera. Over the last week, I've been involved with some other stuff that's been taking up some of my time, so progress probably, like I said, is not going to be stellar in the next update either. It's kind of how it goes sometimes. Anyway, that number stays at 5,061 pages, which is a perpetually solid green since I hit my goal for the year months ago. Now, I'll have to reevaluate the goal for 2024 as we get closer to see what I think can be done. I think I'm just going to pull devotions out of this goal update. I mean, those are kind of on autopilot for the most part. A bad week is hitting my devotions five days out of the week, which was my original goal. Most weeks are either six or seven days I get into them. So I'm not going to keep speaking on this in this update. I think I'm pretty good there. As for Bible reading, well, again, work stuff, right? I've explained before that I try to do the reading uh, during my lunch period there at work. Um, Well, I got some work stuff and then trying to get it done at home. I got some external stuff out of this one got pushed. So as of this update, I hit my Bible reading three days out of the week, which boy, that sounds bad when you say it out loud like that with a goal of five. Uh, Overall, I'm sitting at 78% of my goal since I made my new goal back in late July. This is now a light red as I'm losing ground. Now, admittedly, this is kind of like reading pages in a book. I mean, I get home in the evening. I'm just kind of tired, right? I make specific dinner, maybe get some tasks and things done that need to be done. I work on some podcast stuff, try to get the workout in. I mean, focused reading, no matter what it is, is kind of draining, right? Unless you're just reading just drivel, it's kind of draining. But we shall endeavor to persevere. As for this goal update, I'm through Genesis 27 in my regular type reading stuff. I'm through Genesis 319 in my in-depth reading. So let's take a look at some of the things that kind of struck me or prompted questions, you know, for me over the last week. Give me your opinion on these if you'd like. In Genesis 24, we find Abraham sending a servant to get a wife for Isaac from his people. The servant goes to the region and then prays for a sign. The sign is granted to him by God. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. We aren't told to ask God for signs before we do something. That said, when the servant spoke with Rebekah's brother and mother and told them the sign he had asked of God and how Rebekah fulfilled the request, then he asked if she could come back with him to be Isaac's wife. They both said, quote, The matter comes from Yahweh, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. 
And then they release her to go. This is once again an example of trusting the sovereignty of God. I mean, it's just everywhere here. They could have argued and balked at this. They had the right, right? But they trusted God's will for her. And then we see Rebecca also trust God's will for her life. Now, I know the Bible doesn't give us all the information, but we see such a pure trust in an omnipotent God here. It's it's something that we just don't see that much of today, I don't think. But we likely massively benefit from taking examples like this to heart. Just trust God. He's got this. We don't have to have everything figured out. We may not understand everything. We may be impatient. Some of you, obviously, not <clears throat> me. But just trust God. Next, in Genesis 25, 8, we see, just as with Job, a phrase that I would love to have said about me when I die, right? And this time it's speaking of Abraham, quote, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of days. The simple phrasing, it just, it just comes off as having a contentment about it, doesn't it? All right, moving on to Genesis 26, 18 through 22, we have the short narrative of Isaac becoming too powerful, told to leave, then the game of digging a well, being told he doesn't own the well, digging a well, etc., etc. Although the circumstances were, I mean, they had to have been frustrating, right? Again, we see God sovereignly moving Isaac into the region he wanted him to be, using a massive annoyance to do so, but it's God's sovereign hand. Now let's back up to Genesis 3 for the last main point I'm going to make here. We see the curse on Adam and on Eve and on the serpent, right? This is right after sin. A few things that at least made me think here. So Eve was cursed with pain multiplied greatly in childbirth. Now she never experienced childbirth at this point, so there was never a relatively painless childbirth. That said, this also implies that pain was part of the original creation. Now I don't have any idea as to what extent that might be or or what things would have caused pain. But if the pain of childbirth was going to be multiplied, that implies that there was something to multiply. If there was going to be no pain originally in childbirth, then wouldn't it say something like pain will be experienced or there would now be pain or pain would be added to childbirth or something like that? Then we move to the serpent, and I've mentioned this before. I don't believe the serpent was Satan or that it was a mindlessly indwelt serpent by Satan. I believe, based on the curse being transmitted to all snakes, that this specific serpent willingly conspired with Satan in this deception. So, verse 14, the curse given to the serpent is cross-referenced to Isaiah 65:25. This verse is in a section of Isaiah 65 that's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. When you read verse 25, we see that the wolf and the lamb will graze together. We see that the lion will eat straw like the ox. Now, both of these are a return to the original creation. Then we read that dust will be the serpent's food. The verse finishes with stating that they, referring to all of those spoken about, will do no evil. But I find it interesting that the curse on the serpent is that it was cursed more than any other beast. It would crawl on its belly and, quote, dust you will eat all the days of your life. So is Isaiah 65 telling us that the serpent, maybe not fully cursed in the new heavens and earth, is still cursed in this way because of what the original serpent did? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how else to take that verse, but it doesn't appear that the curse was completely reversed. Anyway, 
that's all I've got for you today. Let me know where I nailed it, where I missed it, questions you've got, answers you've got. That would be nice. Whatever you want. Okay, bye.